Hi everybody, welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here and I'm sitting in Gale's Cafe in Exmouth Market with a new friend, I hope I can say that, a new colleague, James Rogers. James, how are you? I'm very well, thanks Toby. Now tell me, apart from your life having been enriched by meeting me a couple of weeks ago, uh, <laughs> at a seminar, <laughs> what are you up to these days? Um, I've just joined the staff of the journalism department at City University here in London, very close to where we're sitting in fact. Uh, and prior to that I was teaching at another university for a couple of years, but I've spent most of my working life as a journalist and most of that in international news. Uh, I've just published a book reporting conflict about some of my experiences and hopefully some useful analysis of them, and uh, I'm currently working on another book um, about Gaza, where I was the BBC correspondent for two years, from 2002 to 2004. Now, it's very hard not to ask you to talk about Gaza right away, so I'm going to have to do that, I'm afraid. I want to get back to talk about the book, and talk about being a super, self-superannuated hack. <laughs> but seriously, um, we're speaking now on the 21st of November, uh, this is one of the crucial weeks in the history of the Arab world, the Middle East, whatever we call it. Yeah. We could have said that many times in the last 70 years, in fact in the last 100 years. But how do you see things right now? What are your contacts telling you? Um, the one thing I often feel when I look back at this, as I say, I was there from 2002 till 2004. It was the time of the second Palestinian intifada or uprising against Israel. And it seemed to me that um, it probably couldn't get any worse, the situation in that territory, but it seems to me now that it almost certainly has. Um, and uh, I think this current round of fighting will subside, but as far as I can tell, as having observed the diplomatic processes such as they are around that conflict for the last 10 years and more, there's never really, or at least recently, not been any serious attempt to address the long-term problems. So while this particular conflict I think will come to an end of some shape. I mean, as we're speaking, there were, there were even rumours last night that there might be a ceasefire imminent. That hasn't come to pass, but one can hopefully assume that's going to happen within the next week or two. But longer term, I think it's, uh, it's very difficult to say what's going to happen. It was only in August this year that the United Nations warned that, uh, according to their predictions, the population of Gaza will be in excess of 2 million by 2020. This is a tiny territory. I mean, um, I imagine some of your listeners may have been there, but the vast majority of them won't have been. It's 45 kilometers by 10. Can you imagine 2 million people living in there? Um, and quite apart from any political considerations, there simply aren't the resources there. There water, isn't the, the, the water, particularly in that part of yeah. the world, as you can imagine. So I think... Um, the, the military strategy, which is what um, both Israel and Hamas is resorting to at the moment, is not going to produce um, the long-term solution which they require. But I have to say that uh, as someone who was a close observer for the conflict for a couple of years, I think it's very difficult to see, you know, how, well, however this ends, somebody's going to be very, very disappointed. Now, it's difficult to be optimistic about it, I fear. Hinging from that onto perhaps your book, which I, I haven't read, um, you were there with the BBC. The BBC is constantly accused of bias in reporting these conflicts, in report reporting the struggle between Palestine and Israel. Even the terminology is problematic. Before telling us a little bit about 
been on the ground. Tell us a little bit about the pressure, to the extent you feel comfortable, yeah. of actually working in such an organisation and trying to report when there are so many different points of view. There are. I mean, one of the, I think one of the biggest challenges and one of the um, most accusations of bias, I think, can more or less be distilled down to this, is that of context. Your biggest challenge, I found, as a reporter covering that conflict, where do you begin? Yeah. Just to give you an example, in the first week I was in, first month probably, I was in Gaza, I was talking to uh, an elderly gentleman whose house had been destroyed in the conflict, and he began... Through, speaking Arabic, through my, uh, my colleague, my Palestinian colleague, uh, who was accompanying me and helping me to translate, he began chastising me for the fact the British government had produced the Balfour Declaration. Yeah. This, of course, is the document which suggests that the then government in 1917 uh, might be willing to consider the establishment of a Jewish homeland in what was then Palestine. Now, to the BBC's credit, one of the questions on the interview for that post, and surprisingly enough, you might be surprised to learn there was quite a bit of competition for it. One of the questions was, what was the Balfour Declaration and what was its significance? In other words, the BBC insisted that anyone who was going to send there as its representative had to have this historical background knowledge. Because if you were going to get that question on a daily basis, you needed to know what the, what the contributors, what the people around you were talking about. But Reporting the news is very, very difficult in that context, in, and, and I'm quite sure it was the same for people who covered Yugoslavia. The roots of that conflict in the 1990s, of course, many of them lying in the Second World War and earlier. So that's one of the great challenges, and as a journalist, you know, you will hear in newsrooms, we're not out to give people a history lesson. But a lot of the critical work which has been done, for example, by the Glasgow Media Group about the reporting of that conflict says, well, actually, you do need to do this. So I'm paraphrasing what they say. This is the, the lesson I took away from it um, as a journalist. And I, and I think in that sense, they've most definitely got a point. But how do you do that in your minute and a half on the news that day? Now, I'm not sure if listeners realise, but the average TV report is probably about 200 words. Now, if you think of that, Toby, as an author and as an academic, he's to give him a lot more space. It's incredibly difficult to distill that you down. To, you mean the way I wank on? Is that what you're telling me, <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. I'm, <laughs> I'm, well, I just to, for a brief aside, the first article I submitted to an academic journal, I made a real effort to write what I thought were long, discursive paragraphs, <laughs> and the reviewer came back saying that the short, snappy, journalistic style was a refreshing change. So it showed I hadn't managed to cross the boundary. But... Uh, the, you know, aside, you're faced with a, a question of um, which audience are you talking to? Do you talk to the well-informed audience who doesn't need this historical context and risk alienating the, the new readers start here, if you wish? Or do you talk to the new readers start here and impart nothing of, of useful detail to those people who already have that, that knowledge? So I think... Um, I won't for a moment pretend that the reporting of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is perfect, it isn't. And I will also never pretend that journalism is perfect, because it isn't. And I think a lot of the accusations which are levelled at it sometimes don't always understand you know, the day-to-day -day practical pressures which are involved. But um, it, is, uh, it, it, is, it is a big issue on question. I think a lot of it can come down to context, and it's something which, you know, I've tried to suggest ways in which it can be addressed. Well, tell us a bit about the book. Let's move on to that. I'd love to go back and talk to you about the Glasgow Media Group uh, later if we can. But uh, this book's come out this year? Yes, came out in July this year. it's called Reporting Conflict? Reporting Conflict, yeah. And what's in it? Well, it's, um, I think my purposes in writing it were threefold, really. There was um, an academic purpose. I wanted to contribute to the, the, the literature um, which studies conflict journalism from my professional background. 
I wanted to have, uh, it was an educational motive too, I wanted to tell particularly undergraduate and postgraduate journalism students things I wish I'd known myself 20 years ago when I started out, so that's my, how I describe my educational mission very briefly. But thirdly, and, and most certainly not least importantly, there was a personal motive too. It's um, as an opportunity to reflect and to take the chance to think at greater length than you get when you're working on daily news reports. And I realised that, you know, in, uh, in a world and where in an academic environment in which reflective practices journalism, in journalism is encouraged, it's something I've really very done very little of. So this was an opportunity to address that, to look back at the milestones of the world in which I'd covered and see how they'd affected journalism and how I might best analyse those lessons and, and share them with the next generation of journalists. Now, it always interests me, James, when I read journalists' books, they're pretty good at... In a sense, the movement between talking about yourself and talking about what you see. When I interview journalists, by and large, you as a group are anxious not to make yourselves the story. Often very sure. There are some actually. notable exceptions. <laughs> but not the ones that I interview. Yeah. The ones I've interviewed, amongst all the different types of people I talk to for this podcast, are in a sense the most shrinking of violence. Uh, the story always dominates, and what I want to find out a bit more about how they got to be who, who they are, because a lot of young people listening to these podcasts, there are people listening in 50 countries, a lot of them not with English as a first language. A lot of the people listening to this who are younger would like to know how I get to be X or Y, and journalists often pull back from that. Now, I guess if I ever get to do one with Robert Fisk, it'll be different, but you know, yeah. it's interesting that, isn't it? So how did you manage that in terms of this book? The, the relationship between talking about yourself, which I think is valuable, and talking about what you see and saw and reported. Well, for the purposes of this book, which was principally aimed at uh, student or academic readership, um, I tried, the approach I took was to try to use my own experience as a, as a form of research archive, if you like. That was research material upon which I drew, but I tried, having done that, to put it in the right academic context. I think the hardest thing for me was probably familiarising myself with um, some of the academic literature on the subject, because... Um, rightly or wrongly, journalists don't generally read what university lecturers write about them. There's not. Uh, I, I hope that um, you know my book may, in some modest way, go towards redressing that because I think it could be mutually beneficial. Some academic research, particularly about conflict reporting, I mean, it is wide of the mark, frankly, because where um, a researcher can get access to, say, a newsroom in New York or Paris or London, it would simply wouldn't be possible for them to actually to go on the battlefield with somebody or into a disaster zone. Now, I know researchers do do that, but it's not the sort of way you can readily accompany your subject if that subject is a journalist. And I also remember once when I was working in the Middle East, there was a researcher who came um, to observe us working, and I was um, incredibly nervous and, and perhaps closer to the journalist you've just described, consciously not myself, that on that day, but consciously behaving as if I would if I were the representative of the BBC in the public forum. When I was first thinking about becoming a journalism lecturer, I accepted uh, a few invitations to speak at universities as a way of finding out if I thought I might like it. And I remember my editor at the BBC giving me an extremely sound piece of advice because we'd been talking about bias and the accusations you could get. I always felt very guarded about what I'd say in a public forum. And this editor's wise counsel was, don't say anything you don't want to appear in the Daily Mail. 
In other words, say what you like, but remember, that was it, you know, the Daily Mail is often hostile to the BBC and would be quite happy to find that a BBC correspondent had caught him or herself out in a public, de in a public debate. So that was a sound piece of advice, but obviously now, you know, you're at liberty to speak more freely, but I wanted to, um, you know, to try to, to explain mo motivation is a, is a very difficult one. Well, you know, why do you go and put yourselves in harm's way? I mean, it's uh, one of the chapters in my book is called Remember It's Not Your War. Now, people like me who've had a very comfortable upbringing in the Western world and never had to worry about going through a checkpoint to get to school or university. I've got a different experience from the Palestinians alongside whom I worked, who when we were covering a conflict, they might be standing in front of their own house. My own house was 1,500 kilometres away. And it's a very, very different experience. And it, um, different reporters can bring different perspectives, can contribute different things to understanding of the story. But my goodness, is it difficult for people like that. So I wrote... Um, we're thinking about the current conflict in Gaza, of course, the immediate precedent was the one from New Year 2008 till 2009. What the Israelis did on that occasion was largely to bar international journalists from entering the territory on the grounds of security. I mean, that was dismissed by most journalists who know that covering conflict is dangerous and you take, you know, you accept the risk involved. One happy consequence of that from a coverage point of view was that Palestinian journalists who worked for the big international organisations actually found themselves in the limelight. I think that brought to the reporting something which hadn't previously been voices which were not nearly heard to the same extent. Different perspectives, of course, different accusations of bias. But I thought it was very interesting about that, to try to understand something which I, as a Westerner who's covered conflict in the Caucasus and the Middle East, has never fully understood what it must be like to cover a conflict in which you have that huge personal and economic stake. Yeah, and also where it's organic to your life. It's not as though you're a temporary invading force, like say the United States and Britain in Iraq or Afghanistan, mm. but a long-term invading force, but nevertheless. But when this is who you are and what you are, and there is no outside, it's got And there's no way out it. either, by the way. I mean, that's one of the important outside. distinctions. And I was yeah. talking um, with one of my former um, colleagues. I was talking to him just last week, actually. He now lives in London. And I, you know, I was willing to, I was quite happy to, to make the point and to concede the point. We were talking to a group of students together. I could always leave. On the rare occasions when I couldn't, when the security situation in Gaza prevented my crossing the border because it was absolutely closed for everybody, I felt most uncomfortable, but it was just the tiniest glimpse for me of what it must feel like to be a Gaza-Palestinian all the time. Uh, and if I could ever, you know, my editors occasionally put pressure on me to leave to take a break. Um, and if I ever phoned them up and said, I'm really tired, I'm worn out, this is really getting me down, I need a break from this, no question at all. You know, on a couple of occasions I took off to Cyprus for the weekend. Very short distance away, but a world away. Never an option for those Palestinian colleagues alongside whom I was working. No, no, absolutely not. Now, this raises another question, sometimes a ticklish one within journalism, but rather invisible to lots of readers and viewers, which is foreign correspondent versus war correspondent. In other words, a person who, like you, actually goes and lives as you did in the Caucasus, actually goes and lives as you did in Gaza, versus I am, say, Christiane Amanpour, and by the way, I think she's a good journalist, very good journalist, but I'm flying in because I'm a troubleshooter and this is where I go. 
How do those relationships work themselves out? Is that a distinction without a difference, or does it matter, foreign correspondent, in a sense embedded in the place, versus war correspondent, in a, in a sense embedded in the process of war? I think both models, um, you know, bring, contribute different things and equally of value. I mean, if you think of some very experienced journalists who've covered a lot of conflict zones, they can draw lessons and they can bring lessons which informs their reporting. They have comparative analysis. Exactly, exactly. Um, war correspondent is a description, I think, which I think it's probably, I think a lot of people nowadays and, and over the last 20 years feel less comfortable with, I think. It's, um, for people of my generation, I'm in my mid-40s now, I started working as a journalist in my mid-20s. Um, it was just part of the world. If you consider the two big milestones which punctuate the world which I reported are the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. Some people would say the fall of the Berlin Wall. I would actually place that a couple of years later because you still had the Soviet Union as a superpower. You still had a leadership which believed that Marxism-Leninism was reformable. It wasn't yet a spent force. I mean, you can probably argue that China's reforms resulted not from 1989 so much as from 1991. The second one, of course, is the attacks of September the 11th. Those are the two milestones in international affairs during the last two decades when I was working as a journalist. It was impossible to report all facets of those two events without covering conflict. So it's something that you got sort of drawn into. I think both um, the travelling reporter or the fireman, as they're sometimes referred to, and the, the resident correspondent bring different things. Um, but uh, what does concern me is the way that the economic models which have supported traditional journalism are starting to collapse. You find fewer and fewer resident correspondents. And I think um, that's a real worry because that's where the expertise often lies. Even if somebody only spends a couple of years there, you, know, you can go too far the other way and get too familiar and too close to your subject, cease to notice things which would strike your audience. So you know, there's, there's, there's cases to be made for each different sure, model, sure. I think. One of the things I, I've tried to get out of some of my work was to show that in the case of, for example, the big US networks, particularly CBS, they retrenched massively their in-country foreign correspondence years before the economic model was supposedly jeopardized by new technology and the departure of advertising and audiences. They retrenched them because of a new economic model that was about return on investment to shareholders. Yeah. Uh, back in the 80s, it's when Lawrence Tisch, the big tobacco and building magnate, took over CBS, but he sacked all the journalists. And that was about his own commitment to return to shareholders, principally his own family. And people followed suit as journalism became an adjunct of really mega corporations with many enterprises, each unit of which must provide significant profits. And CBS, of course, was all the worse because of 60 Minutes. 60 Minutes was the first TV show on network television in the United States that was news or current affairs that made money. Right? It actually was profitable, unlike the news service and unlike other current affairs programs. Once they'd shown that was possible, that was the thin end of the wedge, you see. And I mean, it's become a massive problem ever since. In the LA Times, for example, smaller and smaller and smaller book review section on the weekend. The book review section was the only part of the paper that was required to bring in advertising to pay for itself and only in its own field. In other words, it wasn't allowed to go after advertising for football games or television networks. Its only source of revenue allowed by the owners was publishing. 
so it was fucked. And again and again, I, you know, I guess part of my thing is, of course, technology matters, the new media matter. But big time, it's the loss of a sense of the public interest and the public yeah. purpose impelling these organisations. That's the problem. I mean, obviously, as a BBC journalist, I was largely blissfully shielded from those sort of commercial pressures, and I think it's interesting. One of the massive growth audiences for the BBC World Service in the last few years has been the United States. Sure. Um, but I think um, it is a big concern. I, I remember the consequences of that, the consequences of that for um, democracy and for, for global politics are best summarised in the cartoon which I saw in upstate New York on the um, 14th of September 2001. US airspace, as you can imagine, was closed after the September 11th attacks. I was travelling down from Montreal. I'd flown from Brussels to Montreal. And we stopped in upstate New York. I bought the local newspaper. And there was a cartoon in there which I've tried desperately to find again and which I regret greatly not keeping. But it showed a television screen with the Twin Towers in flames. And the three, a family, I assumed, a man, a woman, and a teenage boy sitting on the, on the sofa watching TV. And the um, father was reading a magazine called Sports People, and the mother was reading a magazine called Movie People, and the young boy was reading a magazine called Teen People. And the caption was, who are these people? In other words, in other words, they were woefully ill-informed, the cartoonist was making the point. And consider the moment at which they found themselves then, Toby, about to embark on two long and some would say disastrous wars as a consequence of that, with a population which really didn't have the information at its fingertips to decide whether it was the right thing or not. No question. Look, the, tragically, the World Service stopped broadcasting shortwave into the US that summer, just two months before madness. Luckily, the web was well and truly operating by those days, so everybody that I knew in the United States, and vast numbers of other people, started going to the BBC and the Gorniad web pages each morning because you had some chance of getting the truth. On National Public Radio during the invasion in 2003, I was spending that uh, year in Los Angeles. National Public Radio basically had the World Service's coverage of the invasion. But it seemed as though, and I've never been able to prove this, every time you actually got an Iraqi voice on, interviewed by BBC journalist, the NPR affiliates, or perhaps NPR at its central node, would go to station identification. I mean, the, the blanket ideological coverage of these conflicts in the United States is genuinely one of the great misadventures of journalism. It's a travesty. Well, we saw the prospect of the, 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 the spectacle of the New York Times having to apologise for its coverage in 2004. And, uh, you know, Judy Miller et al. Uh, absolutely extraordinary. They were deeply complicit. Um, let me ask you a, a quick question about terminology. You mentioned context, the mm. difficulty of being able to explain the Balfour Declaration, the Diaspora, the 48 War, the 67 War, when you've got 200 words and you've got to say what happened today. When I hear the BBC now referring to a thing called Israel and a thing called militants, or things called militants, as the two sides, that, to me, is a massively ideological choice of words. One says, this is a sovereign state, it's a country like the one you're in. The other says, these are lawless people. Mm. Now, it, I don't know what other language you would use, but that's the language that I hear. It's not the Israeli military versus 
the Hamas military, which is what you could use. Well, it's a difficult. I mean, a difficult case to make that Hamas are an established army, though. Um, I mean, terminology very, very difficult. Of course, it is. Um, I mean, let's be honest. The BBC almost never refers to the Israel Defence Forces, which is how they refer to themselves. Do we call them the we? I mean, the BBC calls them the Israeli Army. Or um, Israel. We, or Israel. Israel, I mean, the BBC has to deal with the world as it finds it, though. Israel is an established sovereign state, Palestine is not. Now, we can debate the rights and wrongs of that, it's a separate mm. issue, but that mm. remains a matter of fact. Mm, sure. Um, and obviously, the, at the heart of the entire issue. Um, there are, uh, you know, language is an extremely difficult one. The BBC, um, often to the frustration of, uh, of many governments and armies with whom it has to deal, certainly on the World Service, doesn't use the word terrorist, neither does the Reuters news agency, right. only in direct speech, never in the reporter's copy. Yeah. Um, that is something which I don't think you would find in the United States or you'd find in many other countries. Uh, and which you no, get criticised for by the Daily Mail, yeah, for example. Yes, yeah. I mean, but, uh, you know, you can argue, you can, uh, we can all think of cases where most right-thinking people would probably say that's an act of terrorism. But, you know, we can also think of a massive, massive grey area, you know, so I think that's, that's one that's, that's well steered clear of. But it, language is one of the most difficult ones. I mean, to give you an opposite example, the colleague with whom I used to share an office who worked for the BBC Arabic service, when we were walking down the street in Gaza together, he used to get it in the neck sometimes for not using the word martyr in his reports. Because right. that's the standard right. phrase, yeah. obviously, in Arabic yeah. for somebody who's died uh, in the conflict with Israel. And he didn't use that. And he used to justify it and saying, well, then when a settler's killed, I'd have to say an Israeli martyr. Very, very difficult. And that was taking him away from, you know, the established linguistic conventions of, into, you know, a more BBC one. I don't pretend it's a perfect system. Um, but I think militants has become in some ways a euphemism for terrorist. It's a word that I try to, I try to avoid. I used to, I used to use fighters as a word, you know, that was a factual description as far as I yeah, possibly yeah, could, to one. talk about Hamas fighters, because I don't think that's necessarily negative com commentation. No, 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 I think the word gunman clearly is. That gunman definitely says somebody outside the framework of, of any sort of legal or established military force. But. Not an easy one, you know. No. And I'm not, I'm not necessarily here to defend all the BBC's no. practices, but I think, I think they broadly get it right. Nor am I here to sort of dissociate myself, having left the organisation from what they do, because I'm, I'm tremendously proud to work for them. I think they do a good job. I'm not saying they're perfect. No, sure. And I should say that I admire them uh, too very much. I'm one of the people who still today, you know, I go to the BBC for news and I go to the Guardian for news, and I don't have nearly as much faith in the New York Times despite or perhaps because of all my years living there, even though it is the only organisation that can be even considered akin to the BBC in terms of its world coverage. Uh, moving back from, from that for a moment to your time in the Caucasus, James, uh, this was also a moment of great conflict, of great tension, that people often forget about today, I think, and yet in some ways it's geopolitical upheaval uh, certainly as great as the Middle East or the Arab world, whatever we call it. Did you have similar pressures on you reporting then and there, or were they different? Was it less of a hot spot in terms of people monitoring BBC language, presentation, discourse? It was really, really interesting, and I'm glad you've raised the subject of the Caucasus, because for me as a reporter, 
it was quite a harsh lesson that I learned in one of the first conflict zones that I went to. I think when you're growing up or you're first becoming a journalist, you have this idea that you're sort of independent of politics and you're there to speak the truth to power. No, you can do that. But you know what? Power's only going to listen to a large extent if they want to. In the Caucasus, the Chechen wars were a case in point. To the extent that when I first went to Gaza in 2002, I steeled myself to prepare to cover what I'd seen in the Caucasus in 1995 and 1999, and it wasn't anything like as bad. Now, but with this is uh, coming back to the point that I wanted to make about political agendas. If you consider when that separatist war was fought, you know there were tens and tens of thousands of civilian casualties in that war as Moscow launched a very ham-fisted attempt to try to bring this separatist region back to heel. To put it in a bit of context, they did have probably have to do something. You know, this had become a magnet for organized crime and which was spreading. I mean, there were bigger political considerations. Remember, the Soviet Union itself had only just broken up. If parts of the Russian Federation were to begin seceding, the consequences of that could have been even more disastrous for Moscow. Set that aside, the amount of indiscriminate bombing and shelling that happened in a civilian area, the irony, of course, being that many of the people worst affected were ethnic Russians who were living there. A lot of people from northern Russia had gone there for their retirement because the Caucasus climate is very mild. Now, the Chechens who were living there, there's a very strong system of extended families. They could leave and go and stay with people in the villages. The ethnic Slavic Russians who were living there had nowhere to go to. So they were often bearing the worst brunt of the attacks. The West did very little about it. They didn't want to. They didn't want to because, remember, this was a time when the Cold War had just ended. They had in Boris Yeltsin, Russia, an administration with whom they could do business, to borrow Margaret Thatcher's phrase about Mikhail Gorbachev. And there was no point that, what, what are they going to do? They're going to go to war with Russia over Chechnya? Of course they weren't. And also so they, I, were, they were trying to deal with Serbia. They were trying to deal with Serbia at the same time. Where the Russians had a special entree. I realised then yeah. that um, yeah. government or military intervention will follow reporting it seems to me only in cases of pre-existing political will. Clearly, there was no stomach for taking on Russia in any way than sort of expressions of diplomatic concern. Mm. So the Chechens were left to their fate. Now, what was it like, what's the difference? Uh, partly, of course, age and experience vary, but you went to the Caucasus as a Russian linguist. You studied Russian and French at university, I think you told me. Yeah. Whereas when you went to Gaza, you needed an interpreter. What are some of the differences between those two experiences linguistically, in terms of how deep you could go, how independently you could operate? Unquestionably there's a big difference, and I think I, I, I appreciated that particularly when I, when I got to Gaza, because in my experience as a, as a student of languages and as a reporter, the language is not just a means of communication, it's a way into the culture. And I knew um, from working in Russia when I'd been in a group of Western reporters, some of whom spoke Russian and some of whom didn't, you just listen to the background chatter, you pick up things. And I knew um, when I was in Gaza that I wasn't picking that up. So I knew there was a whole part of my understanding which was absent. Now, and a good translator, and I did have excellent translators working with me, can go some way to addressing that. But you're always, you're one step removed. And actually in the book, I... Um, Include language in my, I write a chapter on access, which begins with everything the sort of physical uh, um, ability to get to a place to cover it, or your access to officials, or your access to other people. But I, in the book, I make the case that language should be considered part of access too. This 
this linguistic um, factor is almost on occasion as important as the physical one because I knew that that was a difference and as I say that was it gives you a great deal of ability to talk to people if you're being accompanied somewhere in particular sometimes in in the North Caucasus I traveled with the you know organized tours by the uh, tours organized by the Foreign Ministry Press Center if you could break away from the group in just a couple of minutes and speak to some people who'd happen to have the nerve to sidle up to you even if they weren't supposed to talk to anybody who wasn't officially sanctioned. You could have that communication, it could be tremendously telling. Uh, and when you're missing that, you know, when you don't have that language, you do definitely miss out on that. So I think it's very, very important. I mean, not surprisingly, I would encourage journalists to, uh, to study languages even to a basic level, just to try to, not just because of the communication, but also because of the entry which it offers into a culture too. It's one of my major concerns about the doctoral system here in the UK, that in the US, and although the system is sadly changing, it's often been the case to get a PhD, even in theoretical physics, you have to pass language exams in two different languages. That's just understood mm. to be what you would require. And one of my biggest concerns about doctoral students in the areas that I work in, and many colleagues as well, is that they are monocultural. Uh, if you can learn another world language, then an entirely other theoretical and empirical sphere and way of seeing things becomes available to you. I think it's tremendously important. Um, I'm, I'm also thinking of the fact that at the Columbia Journalism School a few years ago in the US, they called J schools there, as, mm, as you yeah. know, there was massive conflict over the idea of requiring students to learn international politics. Uh, similarly, there can be big conflicts in J schools all over the place about saying learn another language mm. or about learn what media studies has to say. So I'd like to yeah. take us back to the Glasgow Media Group, which you mentioned, just to give some context to listeners. This group's been going since, I think the first book was maybe 1976. Bad news, and then really bad news, and more bad news, and on and on and on. And I say on and on and on as if I'm super critical of them. I think they've done extremely important work in doing content analysis of reportage by the bourgeois British press of major topics, whether it's uh, strike activity by unions or foreign affairs. And uh, they've also managed to get attention from mainstream media operatives mm. and have an impact in that sense. At the same time, as they are derided and regarded as out of touch. So I, I wonder if we could talk a bit about them and then maybe go to talk about journalism education. Mm. And I think, um, I remember reading one of their reports when I was based in the Middle East and I, it's, um, it's a question of whether you're willing to defend what you do and I am willing to defend what I do. I don't think that, that I've said before, I don't think the BBC's coverage of the Middle East, I don't think anyone's coverage of the Middle East is perfect. Uh, and I um, have read some of the Glasgow Media Group's work and I refer to some of it in my book. Um, and I think it's a, it's a, it's a very valuable uh, exercise to examine and put it into a wider context, some of the, the things which, uh, some of the shortfalls which they see. I mean, I remember one striking fact which they came up with, which um, said that, uh, I may be slightly misremembering this, but suggested that most of the, uh, most of the people who heard the word settler in, in BBC reports assumed, uh, according to their survey at least, that this meant Palestinians living illegally on Israeli land. Now, 
it, it, comes to, it comes back to the question of context, but you know, I, don't, I, don't yeah. know, I would say in defence of conventional journalism, you know, and that, that phrase, the sort of throwaway phrase of newsrooms, we're not here to give people a history lesson, is, um, you know, it does contain an element of truth, you know, but um, I think one of the ways in which I, I, I try to address this in the book is to say that there is a need for, very much a need for context, and there's a need for impartiality over time. One of my suggestions about the future of, of conflict reporting is borrowed from the legislation which we have here in the United Kingdom governing the reporting of elections, called the Representation of the People Act, which demands that during election time each of the major political parties gets the same amount of airtime. And the, the BBC, people actually used to keep count of this, literally down to the minute and second of how much each spokesperson for each party had had. Um, so uh, I think that's one way to sort of try to address it. My approach when I was in Gaza was to try every so often to do a longer piece. I made a half-hour programme for the BBC World Service about the Middle East and ideas of home, trying to explain what the motivations of this conflict are, trying to suggest, you know, some of the tougher things. There are economic issues, of course, because, you know, a lot of Palestinians have insufficient resources to live, economic problems. But and this is one of the real tough questions that no diplomatic process has really addressed. For me, this conflict is about faith, not exclusively, but two important factors, faith and this sort of spiritual idea of homeland. Not just having somewhere to live, but having a real tie to the land and almost a religious duty to have and to hold it. And I think you can perhaps make the case that in the last 10 years that's becoming more acute. More important, yeah. Israel has unfortunately, perhaps from its strategic point of view, failed to deal with the secular nationalists of the PLO. We see Mahmoud Abbas increasingly marginalised in this conflict and they're left to deal with Hamas, a much tougher proposition in some ways. So that's why I think that context is very, very important to understand what that motivation is. Um, as far as journalism education goes, I think learning a language is tremendously important. I was very impressed when I joined City that they insist on doing that. It's not super popular with all the students, but at least in the first year here, students do have to do a language, and it's really important. Now, you, like me, didn't train in what you profess, as it were, mm. did you? And I'm assuming that's quite common at the BBC. So how did you learn to be a journalist? Well, we did, I did get some training at the BBC, but mm -hmm. I mean, perhaps to, to expand a little more on the subject of journalism education, that's been yeah. a real area of expansion in, the, in Britain in the last 20 years. We don't have the same tradition that there exists in the United States. In fact, I think, um, and I remember when I was finishing my first degree in the late 1980s, there were only two places that taught journalism at all, which was City and Cardiff, and they only taught postgraduate diplomas. Still the most renowned two places. Still most I'd definitely say. the most renowned two places yeah. in this country. Um, and I think uh, one of the reasons it's driven that is because news organisations, again, because for, for a variety of reasons, are not doing the same training which once they did. So the onus, in effect, has fallen on young journalists to train themselves, in other words, to get a university degree in journalism. So um, my option was uh, to do... I didn't have enough money to go to do a master's, so my option would have been to work for a year and then go back. Uh, I, I should say that probably sounds um, remarkable to students now in this country who have to run up tens of thousands of pounds of debt in order to get their first degree. Not the case when I went to university in the 1980s. Um, but I decided I was very, quite keen and impatient to start working. Now, for me, um, it was an interest in travel, it was an interest in writing, and it was also you know, a skill which I'd acquired in my first degree. I, I came out 
of universities speaking Russian at a time when there was a dearth of Russian speakers in journalism and one of the big sto biggest stories in Russia since the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution. So every degree of professional advancement or success in journalism has always got something to do with luck and that was my sort of lucky choice, I suppose. You're the complete opposite of all those poor bastards who finished their PhDs on the structure of the Politburo, got them published in 1988 or 89 and then became completely unemployable as academics. Yeah, I know. I heard a story the other day of somebody who was studying just, you know, something like that. But I mean... Curiously, I think you know the way that Russia changed afterwards. That sort of context also became very useful again, when it was suddenly realised that you know neoliberal economics and and American British-style democracy was not going to solve all the problems of Russia in the space of a couple of years. Helped you know, out Chelsea Football Club. Well, <laughs> not in the Champions League last night, but was. <laughs> now let's get on to this journalism education thing. I mean, we're all familiar with the old saw that says those who can do, those who can't teach, those who can't teach, teach teachers. There is historically a certain contempt often amongst journalists for media studies, academics, for journalism schools, and often vice versa. Mm. Misunderstandings, misconnections. Uh, you, you mentioned, I think, very movingly, actually, that the story of the researcher coming into the field with you and you're having to adopt in you're not having to, but adopting yeah, choosing another to, kind not of to persona, be myself, basically. You yeah. know, and and I, I think that, that that space, that gap, can be a really big issue. So, do you think there can be more of a rapprochement, especially now that resources are in question for so many news gathering organizations? How, and how do you think that can be achieved? Well, I, I think by a sort of... Um, I would hope by more people who've got a background in journalism choosing to get involved in journalism academia. I mean, it, it's a growing area in this country for the reasons that I said. If you want to be a journalist now, increasingly you're expected uh, to have a qualification in it before you start. Not exclusively, but largely. And if you think of... If I think of my generation of journalists, I, mean, I think more than half of them have probably got university degrees or around that. Generation before it was probably a minority, you know, apart from for certain publications. I mean, I think uh, foreign correspondents may well have more had university educations, but that's changing. I think now there are fewer and fewer journalists who haven't got some form of formal journalist education. I had training courses when I was at Reuters, I had training courses when I was at the BBC, but I never sort of sat down and trained for you know, a sustained period. Um, so I hope there can be a rapprochement to some degree, because I think there are things that each side can learn from the other. Um, but um, I do think there is a sort of misunderstanding, I mean, and, and as I say, I think there's some... This is maybe a, a slightly harsh thing to say, but I, find it, I, I sometimes find it hard to see how somebody can spend their entire life studying journalism and writing about it. We've never actually wanted to do it. That, that seems... I mean, I would say that coming from my perspective, but... Um, in defence of the worth of journalism education, I'm realising increasingly, still in my third year as a lecturer, just thinking, I wish I, I do wish I'd known that 20 years ago, which is why I meant that, and I make that the, the, the absolutely sort of central core idea of my approach as a journalism educator. Because I, if I'm thinking, I'm telling students in their late teens and early 20s now some of the experiences I've acquired, which I only learnt myself in my late 20s or early 30s. And I, I sometimes wonder, I wish, you know, think I might have. I was very fortunate, I had a career which I enjoyed, a degree of success, professional challenge, and I'm very pleased with it, but I do wonder sometimes if I couldn't have been a better journalist if I'd studied journalism. In fact, I believe I would have been. What would you have 
learnt that would have helped you? What are the things that need to be there? Context? Context is important, but I think it's just the... I think the, mo the most important thing is perhaps the judgement which you um, acquire as you go along, and the practical writing skills as well. I mean, obviously I wrote at university and I, I raised a couple of eyebrows with a, with a colleague who happened to be sitting... Well, an eyebrow with a colleague who happened to be sitting into a, in a lecture recently. Um, I began by, by telling a group of first years that I felt, you know, they need to be clear that while they were studying journalism, they needed to understand and, and master two different kinds of journalism, two different kinds of writing, academic writing and journalistic writing. And I said, you know, many of my colleagues at the university would disagree with me, but I would define them as follows. In journalism, you put the most important thing at the beginning, and academic writing, you put the most important thing at the end. I say that was what didn't go down terribly well, but I mean there is a distinction in the way in which things are presented and things like that. And, you know, you need you need to have a curiosity. You need to be interested in all sorts of things, but you need to write, write, write. I often use um, the simile of an athlete and say, a well, metaphor of Usain Bolt saying he didn't just get up and run the 100 metres for the first time in the Olympic Stadium in London this summer. He trains for a long time. He has all sorts of other preparations in terms of diet and, and fitness programs. So you need to do that. You need to train yourself as a writer, and that's something you need to do over an extended period. One of the reasons I realised I didn't belong in the cohort of the ideal New York Times reader was that I can't stand New York Times reports to begin with. James and Toby were sitting having an innocent enough cup of tea and coffee, and then four paragraphs down, I discover that it's about the fact that I murdered you or that uh, we were present when there was a bomb attack that's part of a war. In other words, the human interest obsession in US journalism drives me crazy because I have to wait so long to find out what the bloody thing's about. Yeah. I have to have some pitiful story of some little family doing this, that and the other. And I realise that for many readers and listeners, that is a way in, and I can see it can have an emotional effect. But when it's so standardised, it's routine, it's just always there, yeah. I just think, can you tell me why I should read this bloody thing? I know there are lots of unhappy people in the world. I want to know about the major political, economic, cultural, strategic factors that are creating crisis or difficulty. Yeah, I mean, the best reporting does that, can combine the two, but I, I, I would agree with you that in American newspaper journalism, uh, it is probably an overused technique. I mean, just to, to talk about the New York Times, though, I mean, I, I, uh, I read the Herald Tribune most days because I find that... Um, in a world where good international news is hard to get hold of, that increasingly, I almost invariably every day, provides me with something that I didn't know about, but yet in which I'm interested. But I would agree that that technique is probably overused. And it, uh, to me, as a Brit, it actually seems peculiarly American, and you do sort of, um, don't overuse it would be my idea. 20 years living there, a US citizen, it'll never work with me. I don't mind if it's embedded in the story. Yeah. It's just not the way to begin. Begin by telling me why this is on the front page. Mm. Anyway, um, let me ask you about some changes that you probably saw during your time there. Because you're starting when the email is fairly new. Yeah. Starting Reuters and BBC. When the web isn't really happening. When the possibility of satellite technology directly linking you to newsrooms isn't really there. And cell phones aren't really there. And then by the time you leave, you are writing copy that isn't that is you presenting to camera, you talking on the radio, 
and is then appearing on a multitude of BBC and other yeah. websites. Tell me about that change, assuming I've got that history. Yeah, right. no, I think that's absolutely. Right. In fact, um, I've just uh, I've just published an article, in fact, called Two Sides of the Mountains and Three Sides to Every Story," <laughs> which compares two trips to the Caucasus, one to the North Caucasus in 2000, and one to the South Caucasus in 2008. I'm talking about exactly that process and the three sides of the story are having to provide material for TV, radio and the web on each assignment that you go on. 2000 was the first time I had to do that. So, but that, that didn't mean to say that I did it for every story thereafter, but it was just something you started to bear in mind from that moment onwards. Um, the most important change as far as uh, reporting goes, now let me first list some of the positive aspects of it. Journalists like to get their stuff out there, they like to get their stuff read. So, where once that interview that you did would have been, you'd have used 10 seconds out of a 25 minute interview, because that's all the 10 seconds that you need for your minute 45. The rest was chucked in the bin, and you might have agonized for a long time over which bit you were going to use if you had two or three really good bits. Now you can put all of it up there, put all of that out on the web, you can write it on a you can write it on the web page of your news organisation. Consider, for example, 20 years ago, the BBC and the Guardian newspaper or the Telegraph were completely distinct media outlets, platforms as a word we almost certainly wouldn't have used then. Consider them now. BBC does text, the Guardian and the Telegraph do audio and video. So the distinction, this is convergence in practice, as it means for journalists. Um, but, so bigger, you know... A, wider distribution, better way of presenting your content, different stories lend themselves far be best to different media. Some things you can write far better than you can show on TV, some things you can't convey adequately in, 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 in text. An example I often give to students is the sinking of the Costa Concordia. I get them to write a radio story for it. So I say, what do you want to, what's the first thing you want to do when you hear this story? You want to go and look at a picture of it because you want to see this huge ship on its side. Everybody remembers that striking image. If you can't do that, you have to make your radio report carry the weight of that, of the, do the job of the picture too. Those are the plus sides. The downsides are the disappearance of deadlines to the extent that you know, they want it yesterday is the phrase you constantly hear. It's the title of a paper I gave recently about 24-hour news and the, the lack of time to reflect. Um, and you spend so much time when you're out thinking about have I got everything to satisfy the material for these three platforms that it sometimes takes away from your more very necessary editorial reflection. As time goes on, though, you get used to thinking about that. But I mean, I used to find sometimes I would make a list in my notebook of things, you know, ideas that I wanted to explore when I was out on a story, but also of elements which I needed to get. You know, how was I satisfying all the requirements of TV, radio, and the web? So, time is the journalist's most precious resource, and that is being that's been put under further pressure by in the multimedia world. So, it's not. Um, a universally bleak picture, but nor is it, you know, one that, that's, that's simply wonderful. And there's a lot of garbage out there on social media, as for example, the gay girl in Damascus, you know, showed very clearly. And um, so it's it's uh, it's a constantly changing picture, but it is it is constantly changing. I mean, I think one thing that probably is going to happen. Um, a senior BBC editor whom I interviewed for this article used the metaphor of two streams. She says you'll have the continuous news stream but you're going to always need to have the more considered piece. It may well be that that's where the future of journalism lies. 
that the, stuff, the content that people will pay for is still going to be that properly written report at the end of the day. Well, that's what the Financial Times and the, uh, manages to make a lot of money from. Yeah. That it's not a rolling news cycle. It's in-depth reporting that is timely. But in-depth reporting, and I think a lot of newspapers are thinking of it in those terms. When you were reporting, did you have an ideal viewer, reader, listener? Was it, you know, when I started working as a broadcaster, my father, who'd been a broadcaster and, and then a correspondent for The Economist newspaper, as it likes to call itself. As it still does, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> I think the definition of newspaper is actually basically saying it has to come out at least weekly, so I suppose they have a reason, but any sane person would call it a I would imagine if you were to challenge The Economist on that, they could come back at you with any amount of well-reasoned argument. I think they probably thought it through, haven't they? They always do. <laughs> but his thing to me was, because we both started doing this hymn just before the Second World War, me, you know, in the 19, late 1970s. Imagine there is a rather lonely, slightly hard of hearing old person, his example was a woman, an isolated person for whom your voice is a pleasure, uh, a source of information, a companion, and someone to keep them awake or lull them to sleep. And think about that person who's looking for something. That was what I. That was the person I imagined yeah. when I started. But who was your ideal reader, listener? Depends on who you're writing for. And one of the things about writing for BBC is you're writing for domestic and international outlets. Uh, and you're right, within that, you're writing for a lot of different ones. I mean, I remember um, covering an EU summit uh, of which there was, there was uh, unrest, the demonstrators clashed with police. And I had to do a report for um, Newsbeat, which is uh, a very short, snappy news bulletin on um, one of the BBC's music channels, Radio 1, which is principally aimed at the under-30s or even the under-24s. It's actually aimed for people who haven't been born yet nowadays. <laughs> Just about, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I had to tell, I'm worried about getting myself into deep trouble by using the wrong phrase, you know. <laughs> I had a colleague who was at one of their meetings who used the phrase the hip parade, you know. <laughs> Showed his age in a very, exactly. Booby parade. But um, <laughs> I, I, they were very concerned that a 30-something reporter, as I then was, was going to report on this for them. And I said, so the producer came on before I was going to, I had to tell a story in 20 seconds. And I said to, he said, you know, what happened? I said, well, the police and the demonstrators were just coming from opposite ends of the streets and then it just kicked off and he said which is the phrase that we use in this country normally for groups of football fans fighting each other um, and, he, uh, and he said oh that sounds great yeah just say that and I said can I say kicked off on the BBC in that context he said yeah that would be fine but then you know by the set the next, later that day I was doing much more serious report for Radio 4 so you do definitely need to alter that according to the audience and it comes back to the question of context as well just on a very simple level if you're talking about the British Prime Minister David Cameron on the World Service you will say the British Prime Minister David Cameron. If you're writing for a domestic audience you rightly assume they know who David Cameron is. Um, so that, that does depend but it's a very 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 and sometimes and sometimes even for the BBC I'd end up writing the same story twice. If um, particular Britishisms were unavoidable. You know, we used to always use US dollars, for example, in money, because we, we reckon that that was the most widely understood one around the world. Sometimes, if the sum of money was absolutely key, and you were writing it for a British audience and using pounds sterling, then you would simply do it again with dollars and kilometres instead of miles again for the international audience. Yeah, no, absolutely, and I think it's worth talking about that. Uh, 
Let me give you a couple of examples. Um, when I was living in New York, BBC Three, the television network that was quite new in those days, asked me to come into the studios in New York and give some comments on footage of not Daniel Pearl, but one of the other people who'd been kidnapped and whose assassination, execution, was shown on tape. And um, I said, sure, I'll go and do that. They said, you don't, you don't have to watch it. We just want you to tell us what this signifies. And then they contacted me again. By the way, could you please send a very recent photo of yourself? We're not sure we want you. It depends on whether or not you look young enough for our target audience. Goodness, it sounds so more like a case of discrimination, I, if anything. I sent them a photo and they said, OK. Oh, By the congratulations, way, Terry. Well, you must have been quite pleased with me. Yeah, sure. <laughs> this was some years ago, I think. By the way, they were massively misleading me. And without any warning, they did show me mm. the execution. But in any event, that struck me as quite an interesting tidbit. Um, here's the BBC, a supposedly reputable news organisation, literally saying, your opinion only counts if visually you satisfy our demographic target. I think saying that to a contributor is probably in contravention of BBC's editorial guidelines, actually. So I think, um, I think you're fine. If you, if you had decided to make an issue of that, you would probably have found the BBC would have taken some action. But, uh, but you know, that, that doesn't mean to say that it goes on everywhere. You know, it, no, sure. So. I mean, I guess I, I don't want to turn myself into a Daily Mail reader. But you know the Daily Mail is the most popular online paper in the US, yeah. where it's basically a page three or TMZ style yeah. outlet, it's not the Daily Mail. Um, James, we've only got a couple of minutes left. I wanted to ask you um, one more thing, which is to tell us a little bit about this next book that you're working on. Um, after reporting conflict. Yeah. Well, I'm hoping this book is, uh, it's a book I've been working on for a number of years. It's a book I actually started work on originally in 2004, just after I finished in Gaza. I'm hoping it's going to be published next year. It's called No Road Home, Fighting for Land and Faith in Gaza. And it's in it I try to tell the stories of the people whom I knew then and whom I interviewed at a greater length. It's about providing that context. Now, it's a different Gaza from the one which we have now. It's a Gaza in which there were still Jewish settlements, positioned strategically throughout the territory. Uh, those were withdrawn in 2005. And it's a, it's a chance, I hope, for ordinary people to tell their stories and to explain their motivation and reactions with the hope taking a, a view of that particular time in history. I'm not aiming to revise it in the light of what's happened. On the contrary, I'm aiming to say, you know, this will enable us to understand a little better what's happening now. This, so here's a snapshot. Here's a snapshot from a particular time in Gaza's history, and I'm hoping that will inform, inform the present. So that's due to be published next year, and I'm, I will be revising it in the next few weeks, looking at it. But as I say, I will be, you know, revising it in, in terms that I will, you know, sharpen up the writing or copy edit where necessary. I don't aim to change the content or the focus because I want it to stand as a record of a particular moment, i.e. from 2002 till 2004. What's the title? No Road Home, and it refers to the failure of the roadmap for peace. Yes, you said No Road Home. I still want, I want, a friend of mine wrote a book called No Road, but I want it to be called Gaza 2004. But sadly, I'm not your sub-editor. So well, we'll see. I mean, the publishers have provisionally accepted the title, but maybe we'll see how things unfold. But it's um, it's because one of the, the core ideas, it seemed to me, at the heart of the conflict was this idea of home, not so much as a physical place, but as a spiritual place. And so that's why we really want to have the idea of home in there. 
uh, and then as I say the subtitle Fighting for Land and Faith in Gaza because that's what it seems to me like to us is which lie at the heart of the com conflict and which conventional political, diplomatic and economic discourses do not address to a sufficient extent. I think in many ways the most valuable thing you've given us today is to reframe things and take us beyond the dogma of realist notions of international relations and instead allow the question of ideology, in this case faith, and of course land to have play, uh, to think of Israel not as a sovereign state trying to survive, although it is that, well, it is that but yeah. also as a political, ideological, faith-driven notion of land and heritage, and to see the Palestinian situation in like terms. I think that is a very important corrective to a lot of the way that we hear everybody from Hillary Clinton to Abu Mazen speak. So I want to thank you, James, and I want to extract a promise from you if I can. This is not a BBC Three promise, you don't have to wear makeup. Good looking guy though you are. And if your wife were here, I'm sure she'd concur that you'll come back when you finish the book, the new book, The No Road Home, and share with us some of your insights from that process. Well, thanks for the opportunity to talk today, and I look forward to doing that.